The funny thing about staring into your own cold, dead eyes is that it may not help you kick your addiction. This is my conversation with Adam Vibe Gunton. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't, and we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repun. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. My guest today is Adam Vibe Gunton. He's a number one best-selling author. He has a book called Chains to Saved, which he wrote in 2019 after having recovered from drugs in uh, 2017. Welcome, Adam, to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Hirsch. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, I was going to say that you had learned from doing your book, from doing, I guess, maybe a book tour. You were sharing your story a lot during that time, and you learned that there's something special and uh, rehabilitative about sharing your story. 100%, yes. I found that uh, for myself and for the people that I work with, it is the number one relapse prevention because we're losing a lot of addicts in the United States and addicts that go to long-term treatment after leaving 40 to 60 percent relapse within the first 30 days and 85 percent relapse within the first year. So us getting that purpose and sharing our stories, sharing our battles and being loud and proud about it is what keeps us going. Well, tell us your story. Well, uh, I grew up all American boy. You know, I was, I was, uh, state champion of, of wrestling in Little League. Uh, we won state my, my, in my football team Little League six years in a row. Won nationals once. I was the home run derby hitter at the Little League World Series. Was, uh, you know, just life was going good. Had, had good grades and all that. But at 12 years old, I was introduced to drugs by an older uh, influence. He introduced me to cocaine at 12 years old. And then moved into marijuana and alcohol after that. And during that time, I was able to have this successful sports career. I went to Columbine High School. I was the captain of the wrestling team. I was the captain of the football team my senior year when we won state. But in the background, I had this hidden drug habit that at the time was just fun. It was just, you know, partying on the weekends, you know. Was it just cocaine um, at that time? By, by high school, I was experimenting with ecstasy, uh, mushrooms, opiates. I was doing Percocets and some types of amphetamines. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't, I tried meth once in high school and it kind of didn't go well. So didn't use that again for a while. But there was this other like amphetamine type of pill that you could get at a gas station that someone showed me and it gave you a lot of energy. So I was doing that too. Yeah. But alcohol was a big thing. Alcohol was always there. I was okay. always drinking. I had a fake ID by the time I was 16, and I looked like I was about 21, so it worked out. Um, but it, it was going, everything was great, you know, partying, having fun. And then my freshman year of college, September 28th of 2008, I had been out partying and drinking like most nights my freshman year of college. And I woke up to my phone ringing and vibrating down by my leg. And I swam through the soft sheets to find my hard phone with the bright screen that read 4.47 a.m. 
and my best friend Chucker was calling me. And I remember having the conscious choice that I could either answer the phone like I always do with, hey, what's up, Chuck? Or I could answer the way I was feeling with, ugh, hello? And in my still drunken state, I chose the latter, to which a soft voice replied, hey, what's up? Why are you calling me this late? I was just calling to say hi. Don't call me this late again. And I hung up on him. And he shot himself. And for nearly a decade, I was unable to share that phone call with anyone, the truth about what happened, as I bottled it down deeper and deeper and deeper with drugs and alcohol. Drugs and alcohol were no longer a way to party and have fun. After that event, they became my solution to life, the way that I felt, the way that I thought. When something good would happen, I would have to celebrate with drugs and alcohol. When I was having a hard time, I would have to you know, numb it with drugs and alcohol. And once that conscious shift happened, I started seeking you know, different kinds of drugs that would do it faster and then administering it in different ways that would make it work faster and better. Shortly after his suicide, I was introduced to Oxycontin. And then shortly after that, I was able to procure a prescription from a doctor for 250 milligrams a day of Oxycontin when I was 19, 20 years old. Which at the time, you know, it wasn't this huge thing that it is now with the knowledge of like what is happening with this drug. So there wasn't a huge conversation about it yet. There wasn't this, you know, it's super addictive. So these doctors were handing them out like candy. But then when that fell short, you know, when we can't have the prescription anymore or, you know, the doctor decides that he's not doing this anymore because he found some stuff out. And there's no aftercare program for me. There's no way to wean off or anything. So I had to move to heroin. And then that's when, that's when it got deeper and deeper and deeper. Smoking it turned into injecting it. Turned into countless times trying to stop. Countless nights throwing it in the toilet saying I'm never going to use again. And waking up in the morning and pawning my TV to go pick up dope. And this just continued in this cycle for years. But this whole time, I always had this ability to live life. I, in 2012, I started a company with one of my friends, a pest control company. We started out of his apartment with a truck and pesticides. And with a needle in my arm, in a calendar year, I went door to door and sold 967 pest control accounts. And where, where do you think that, that comes from? That I mean, I... I, you got to call it an ethic. It's a work ethic. It's a it's a productivity ethic. Well, you know how you know how they say, in order to achieve your dreams, you have to have a really strong why. I had a really strong why with needing heroin, <laughs> so yeah. so I was able to you know, and I say that I say that jokingly, but it's true. I would go out, yeah. and my partner and I had this kind of little deal. That if I sold two accounts, it was 50 bucks. If I sold three accounts, it was 100 bucks. And I was cash that day. And then six accounts would be 200 bucks. And, you know, we would, and I would go out and I would sell the crap out of it. And I had never been taught sales before. I just have this, I have this innate love for people, even in my addiction before I was an addict. And now I, I love people. I love serving people. I love offering things to people that will serve them, you know? So I was able to go door to door and find people that needed pest control and sell it to them because they wanted to work with me. And I I was able to do this, this kind of door to door sales for basically my whole addiction. I then started after I left that pest control company, 
I started into door-to-door satellite sales for DirecTV, Dish Network, that kind of stuff, and was in the top 10 in the country of, of producers for that. And the corporations that I worked for would pay for my housing, they would pay for my bills, they would pay for basically everything I needed, and then I would get a check every week. Because if I'm managing a team of six guys, I'm selling more than that whole team combined, but if each one of them is selling like one or none a day, so it's like three, four, five a day that that team is doing, and I'm doubling those numbers, these companies wanted to keep me happy. <laughs> they, were, they were constantly yeah. taking care of me, which I'm really grateful for. You know, it was awesome to have that opportunity. But at the same time, it got to a point where I was just so sick because I, I was able to go out and work for, you know, 25, 30 hours a week and then just have the money I needed for dope. So it got to a place where in 2015, on November 6, 2015, I had a, had a girlfriend at the time, and I was up in Billings, Montana, and she was staying at her aunt's place at the time, and I went to see her. And I was kind of hiding my drug use from her, wasn't really telling her. I told her I'd been clean and that kind of stuff. And, you know, I leave her place around midnight, 1230, and tell her I have to go back to my hotel and get some sleep for work in the morning. I go around the corner and park, do up a shot, make a shot for myself, and I put it in my arm. And I remember getting upset at first because I was like, I don't feel anything. This is bunk. I got some bunk stuff. And the next thing I knew, I was waking up on the asphalt in a pile of glass with blue and red lights all around me. And what I know now and what I found out later is that I was sold fentanyl and I'm very, very lucky to be one of the people that survived this. And it's crazy because four months later and we're, we're having a different conversation right now, but I'm going to bring it up. I was found dead behind the wheel of a car with a very small amount of drugs, obviously personal, personal use drugs. And I was charged with two felonies and not offered any kind of treatment. And four months later, I'm in my preliminary hearing for court, and my, my lawyer and I like believe that we have a good case to get the evidence suppressed because of illegal search and seizure, and all that stuff is running through my head. And I'm sitting there, and the DA, first thing they do, she rolls out a 52-inch flat-screen TV in front of me and in front of the whole court, admits it into evidence, pushes play, and then I watch body cam footage of a police officer finding my dead body, breaking into this car and pulling me out. And in that courtroom, I looked into my own eyes without breath, without a soul. And that was, that was an incredible experience. I started crying in the courtroom. Um, being able to see what you look like without life in you. And it was like my whole life, I wanted to change my whole life in that moment. I realized in that moment that I am, I'm dying in this. And I, I had known it before. I had known how dangerous this is. I've, I've known that I want to stop. But in that moment, I realized I was losing my life to this. And that still wasn't enough to make me stop. My, my clean and sober date is November 6th of 2017. I suffered for another two years after that. 
And during that time, I'm on, I'm on felony probation. They gave me a five-year sentence with, you know, suspended DOC, which means they put you on probation for five years instead of sending you to prison. And during that time, they allowed me to go work in another state. It was like an interstate compact. And I'm, I'm in uh, my corporate housing apartment in Glendale, Colorado. And I, the whole time, I, like, have a desk with a computer, and I, like, I love to read and work. Even in my addiction, I was always trying to personally develop. I just yeah. couldn't stop using drugs. And uh, I had this desk, and it, you know, had all my stuff in this drawer, and I would made up this shot. And I was looking at it, and I was sitting in, my, sitting in my chair at my desk, and I was looking at this syringe, this loaded syringe, and I didn't want to do it. But I knew inside of myself that I didn't have an option anymore. And I started crying. And I remember the way that syringe looked, magnified and blurry through my tears. This thing that was taking everything from my life, but I had to keep using. And then I set it down on the desk and I put my face in my hands and started crying and crying. And then I heard a voice from behind me say, pray. And I turned around and there was no one there and I put my face back in my hands and I started crying harder and harder and harder. And then the voice repeats itself and it says, it's time, or it says pray. And I, I get up from my chair and I, I limp over to my bed, not from physical pain, but from emotional pain from all the things I'd been through. And I fell down on my knees and I put my hands up in the air and all I could get out was God. And in that moment, I felt arms wrap up from behind me and hug me as if to say, I love you right now at your lowest point. And these weren't arms that were, that were coming from somebody standing over me and like patting me on the shoulder saying, it's going to be all right, bud. They were arms that had gotten down on the ground with me and hugged me in my lowest point. And the next day, I, you know, and at the time I was being mentored by the CEO of that company. And he was, that year, he was in Forbes for uh, the second fastest growing CEO in the, in the country. So I was being mentored by these really high level people, but none of us can get me off of drugs. And... Right. I decide to go, you know, I tell him I have to quit my job. I can't keep, uh, keep, you know, enabling myself with this. I tell my family I'm leaving and I go up to Billings and, you know, I tell them I'm going to do everything I can to stop. And for the next, you know, six, seven months, I'm, I start off in a homeless shelter and I got kicked out of the homeless shelter in 86. They wouldn't even let me be in the homeless shelter anymore because I, I just couldn't stop using. I was going in my probation officer asking him to please put me in prison because I can't stop using. There was no treatment for me, nothing. And it just got to a point where, you know, I, I had tried everything. I had tried the 12-step meetings every single day. I tried church every Saturday and Sunday, Bible study every Tuesday, and nothing was working. And right now I'm 215 pounds. At the end, I was 148 pounds. And so I was... I was close, you know, and I'm sitting in this car that this girl let me borrow and it wasn't stolen, but I did have to start it with a screwdriver and that's just how we lived back then. Um, but I'm sitting in this car and I, I realized that I have tried everything. I have literally within my own power, I have tried everything to stop using drugs and alcohol and I can't do it. And I sat back in that chair and it was right before Bible study. And I, and I said audibly to God, I was like, I'm not, I'm not going, I'm not going to this Bible study. I'm not going to church. I'm not going to these meetings anymore. I'm not going to show up for probation. And I put my hands up and said, I'm done, God. Please just let me die. And I remember in that moment that I, I meant it. I was so honest. Like, I didn't want my life anymore. 
I didn't want to survive anymore because I've tried everything to stop using and all I'm doing in this life is suffering. And he, he whispered to me and he said, it's time, go. And this, this whisper wasn't one of those ones that came from behind me like I had heard before. It wasn't, it wasn't like that outside of me. It was this whisper as if it just was inside of my heart. You know, I just felt it. But in that moment, the first thing I felt is anger. Because what's different about this time? What's different about this time than all the times that I was dumping the dope in the toilet saying that this is the time I'm never going to use again? So I start screaming at him in this car. And I'm like hitting the roof of the ceiling. Like, what's, what's different about this time, God? Please just let me die. And I'm crying and I'm hitting the steering wheel and just like really, really broken and just screaming at God. And he lets me get it all out. And, and then I calmed down because I had yelled so much. And then he just repeats himself and he said, it's time, go. And in that moment, I didn't get this like sense of Holy Spirit power. Like it's done. He's finished it, you know. But I got this sense of willingness that I had never felt before. This willingness to do whatever he said and whatever plan he puts in front of me and to do the actions that he said I needed to take. Because before this, all the times that I was like going to meetings every day and going to church and Bible study and and the probation officer and all this stuff, that was all in Adam's plan. That was all Adam's mustered up plan of how I'm gonna do this, you know? In that moment, I gave it up to God. Went to the Bible study, you know, I, I just prayed, prayed with them. I basically did a third step there where I was just like, I'm surrendering to God. And then five days later, I'm sitting at IHOP with my best friend, Brendan, and he, he was sober. He was leader of that Bible study. He would come and pick me up from the homeless shelter, from the streets, and he would take me to breakfast or church or Bible study or whatever. That person, if you ever have the opportunity uh, to you or the listeners to be that person for someone out there suffering that just loves them without ever telling them you need to stop using drugs. You will become the, the catalyst of change that they have been looking for. Someone that loves them through it and walks them through it, but doesn't ever tell them they need to change. We know, we know we need to change. So I'm sitting there at breakfast with him and I'm all excited because I haven't used in five days, which is a miracle at the time. I'm talking to him and then I get this text message on my phone. I just have this little flip phone and I open it up and it's from my dope dealer. He's like, hey bro, I just got some new stuff. It's fire. I'll give you free 20 to try out. And right when I read it, I felt the spirit, something go in through the top of my head, all the way through my body. My toes were tingling. My fingers were tingling. I lost my peripheral vision. All I could see was the phone and then my thumbs just started texting back. And it was like King James. It was like, ye shall not text me again. Thou hast texted me for the last time. <laughs> it was going crazy. Yeah. And then as soon as I finished the text, I felt that spirit leave me. Just go out through my head. I was like, what the heck? And I'm like reading it. And, and then I show it to Brendan. I was like, dude, that was not me. I don't know what that was, but that was not me. He was like, okay. I push send. I close it. I put it in my pocket. And I'm like, dude, I don't know what that was. And I look back up and Jesus is sitting across from me. The entire restaurant completely disappeared. All I could see was his face. There was a glow coming from behind him. I immediately knew who it was, immediately knew it was happening. I fell with my face to the table, my hand up. I said, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Came back up and he was gone. In that moment, even though I'm a very faithful person in the power of God and believe that in that moment he could have 100% taken the obsession, the craving, the withdrawal, and everything away from me, he didn't. I had an experience with him. And I was still withdrawing and I was still craving 
as if I didn't have that experience. But the great thing about knowing who God is to me and my understanding of God in that moment was then I was able to embark on the 12 steps. And I did the 12 steps honestly, rigorously, and quickly. And uh, on day 25, I did my first ever fifth step, which is where you like confess everything and basically like go over all of your character defects and stuff. And then nothing miraculous happened. But on day 26, my sponsor came and picked me up from the Sober Living House at 6.30 a.m., just like every other morning. And we were driving to the movie theater that he managed in his 1983 mailman Jeep. And I'm looking over at this beautiful sunrise. And for the first time since I was 12 years old, I had no desire to drink or use. And it hasn't come back. And since then, um, you know, I've just been doing everything I can to learn more and, and better ways to help addicts. Whether it be sharing my story, whether it be helping others share their stories, or helping the one that's out there suffering in, in every way I possibly can. Well, first, let me say, Adam, that <clears throat> I'm so glad that you're that you're here, and that you know you you came out on the other side of that. Yeah. I'm I'm glad for you, and I'm glad for us. I'm glad for for everybody that you touch. Um, but the thing that that I want my listeners to take away from it is that this this was a process from start to finish. It was a process from 12 years old. Yeah. It was a process, all of it. Uh, that you were the the message being that you were able to regain that feeling that feeling wasn't gone forever of not wanting it mm-hmm. not needing it um, yeah you know so what is it because another thing was that it it all happened fairly recently you know like I have friends who um, who may be 25 or 30 years sober. Mm-hmm. And when they tell their stories, it does feel like it was yesterday. It feels like, like that life was is so so far away, but it's still so present. It's still so with them. I know people that I saw go that I went. You know, I was there. I knew them when they were using, yeah. and I knew them when they got sober. And so I actually know the diff. You know, I know the difference, but it's still twenty years yeah. ago. You know, um, but this is this is pretty raw for you still, I think. Another reason why it's still raw is, and I've, I've had to overcome, you know, certain parts of it to be able to do what I'm doing now, but that footage of me dead was given to me in my, in my discovery. So now I'm actually able to use that footage to share my story. I have a YouTube video out where I share my story and, and I have that footage in there that's reached almost a million, a million views. And the, the people that are being impacted by it, um, I had to open myself up. I had to show the world my own dead body yeah. in, order to, in order to help people the way that I want to help people. And it's, it's a very humbling place to come from when you're putting yourself out there for rejection and for you know the lowest point of your life being shared with the world. And the amount of love and support that I have received because of it, I want everybody in recovery to experience. Because a lot of people are afraid to share their stories or afraid to share what they really did and that kind of stuff. But that's why I share it. And the reason why I make it very, very clear that I had that experience with Jesus and it wasn't what 
took away the cravings, the withdrawals, and the obsession of drugs and alcohol because not everybody has that experience with Jesus. Some people do. They're, they're, you know, there's a lot of recorded uh, experiences like that in history. But what worked for me to couple with that experience was working the 12 steps quickly, honestly, and thoroughly. It's the only real solution that we have found that works for people like me. Yeah, you couldn't you couldn't prescribe a uh, a meeting with Jesus as the as the catalyst for uh, sobriety exactly. and success exactly, uh, which I think is very genuine and part of. And I also picked up on that that you said you did it quickly. You definitely did it honestly, but you did it quickly. You did it thoroughly. You went through it because you knew you needed to get that done. Yes. That was job one, basically, was to get that done. So we're going to shift gears a little bit in a way that (laughs) most of these conversations and interviews probably don't go, which is to go to to comedy Mm -hmm. and go to humor, because we discussed this a little bit before the interview. It's something that, obviously, using comedy to make the tough talks digestible or I don't even like the term dark humor because I think what it really is is light humor I think what we're really doing is with the darkness doesn't come from the comedy the darkness is already there we're already dealing with it what the comedy does is turn a light on in an otherwise dark room that's that's what I think so you were saying you have a an upcoming like a TED talk Mm -hmm. um and and we're going to talk a little bit about how you might incorporate humor into that or how you're planning to approach well, that. Well, some, some of the little things that I just, that I just shared with you, um, you know, there's, there's little punches that I, that I try to throw in. Like, it was literally in King James, but being able to tell, like, in that moment, it wasn't super funny as the spirit was texting through me, King James, thou shalt not text me again because it was actually happening. But telling the story now, I can find humor in it because when you're listening to that, you're like, what the heck, you know? And then... Um, yeah. With the with the car with the screwdriver, you know that was that was a real thing. She told me it wasn't it wasn't stolen, you know. Um, but I had to start it with a screwdriver. It was her car, you know. That's that can be humorous if I punch it right. But I actually just thought of something as you were bringing this up. I thought of this story, and that happened in high school. And they look for telling signs that you might have a problem early on, right? And I don't know how I didn't know, but. I think it was my junior or senior year of high school. Uh, I had a I had a girlfriend that I was in love with, right? And I told her, you know, I'm I'm coming over to see you, and I'm super wasted, you know. And I and I go over there, and then I'm like trying to sneak in behind behind the the house or whatever, trying to sneak in by the side, and then I hear her dad kind of get up in his room and start to come out, and for some reason I thought it would be the best option to let him know it was me before I ran away to take off all my clothes and leave him there. So I took off my shirt and I took off my shorts and I left them at the side of his house. And then I ran away and then I ended up waking up. You know how moms are always worried about their, you know, they're going to find you in a gutter and I'm worried about getting that phone call. I woke up naked in a gutter two blocks from my ex-girlfriend's house. (laughs) And apparently that wasn't enough but to let see, me know that there was a problem coming. <laughs> but but that's that's where there's a great there's a great bit in that whole story of that wasn't enough. Yeah. That wasn't enough. 
So, you know, like I could see just even a regular stand-up comedian doing a bit where they go, I'm going to tell you the story of not enough, (laughs) you know, because and it starts it starts when I'm, you know, when I'm a teenager and I'm at my girlfriend's house, you know, it's like uh, like the Coen Brothers movies. Like if you look at a movie like Fargo, I don't know if you're familiar with their stuff, Coen Brothers, but but the movie Fargo, their movies always start as comedies, but they get very dark. And there's a turning point where the music starts to get dark and the and the subject gets dark and somebody gets killed. Somebody gets hurt and not necessarily in a funny way. And that's, I think that's parallels a lot of our experiences with some of the mistakes and habits that we form is that it, like you said, you, you had a good upbringing. You, you felt safe. You felt loved. You were, uh, you were an athlete. You were excelling. It started as an additive. It started as something that was that made things a little more fun than they already were, or kept things fun. But it's at some point that that funny thing isn't a joke anymore. Yeah. So it works in the reverse. Right. We create these dark holes for ourselves. We go through these things. If we're lucky and we get through to the other side, at first we're really tentative because we just got out the other side. Now we walk, the further and further we walk away from that hole, the, the, funnier, the funnier we can find the things that are over our shoulder. Right. And, you know, with that light that we shine on it, we can also keep those things a little bit, like you shine a light on something, it's not even that it's not as scary, it's exposed mm. now, you know? So you're... You're you're not making light of what happened at all, really. You're shi- keeping that light trained on that horror show, so that almost like, in my view, it feels like it's almost like it knows that it's exposed. Yes, yeah. that devil, that demon, that monster, that disease knows that it's exposed. It knows that you're you're aware of it. You're you're onto it. Amen. So. What was the process like of writing the book, Chains to Save? Yeah, from Chains to Saved was, you know, a catalyst to starting what I'm doing now. And at the time, it was uh, it was September of 2019, and I had just under two years clean and sober. I had built this other marketing company for healthcare services with two business partners, and was making more money than I'd ever made before. In the other industries I was in, I had this brand new downtown apartment, brand new car, motorcycle, all this stuff. And I had this realization at one point that I was completely empty inside, that that I thought that everything that I would arrive to with, you know, 15 employees and four locations and everything's going well, I barely even need to work. And, um, and then I felt completely empty. And I remember, like, the thoughts of suicide started coming up. And that's what, that's what triggered... The, the instantaneous, like, okay, if I'm having that thought, something is wrong. And I immediately just shut it off, and I walked over to my bed, got on my knees, and just started praying. Just started praying into it, like, I'm sick of this, God. I don't want to feel like this. I don't know what's going on here. But, God, you know your will for my life. You know my purpose, you know. And, God, I want to serve millions of people, God. I want to help millions of people, God. Show me what I need to do. Show me what I need to do. And I'm praying into this super hard. And then I go to bed. Get up in the morning. I say the same prayer just over and over and over and I'm praying super deep into it. And then within 10 minutes, you know, I think I was eating breakfast and scrolling through Instagram or Facebook and I see this ad 
for this conference in California on how to bring God into business. And if that's not an answer to that prayer, I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah. So, Feeling empty? Yeah, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah. So I had to, so I just bought it right there. I didn't care what it, what it would take to get out there. I didn't care who I had to tell I'm going. And I said, okay, this is the answer. So I go out there and it's this Christian business conference. And the first night, you know, I don't know anybody there. I just go out there on a whim. There's like 1500 people there. And I'm the first night they're, they're They have Jesus culture up on the stage playing worship music. And I'm on the on the floor and I'm like, you know, worshiping with my hands up and I'm like singing with them, like, you know, I'm worshiping. And then I hear that voice come into my head all the way through into my heart. And it said, your new company's called Recovered on Purpose. And I was like, that's good. <laughs> I whip out my phone and yeah. uh, I, I pull it out and I go to the secretary of state right there on the worship floor, check it, get, make sure it's good. It's mine. And then I go over to GoDaddy and I buy the domain name right there. I'm like, holy cow, that's really good. You know? And then going through the, going through the conference and I'm all excited. And the next day, uh, September 28th of 2019, exactly 11 days after Chuck's suicide, I'm sitting in the, in the audience and I'm listening to this guy that comes up, Chandler Bolt. He's talking about writing a book and how to self-publish your own book. And I'm like sitting there and I'm like rigorously taking notes, you know, because I've always wanted to write a book and I'm like writing notes and stuff. And then I hear that voice again. And it says, if you publish your book for your two years clean and sober, you're going to inspire so many others to do the same. And I was like, wait, two years clean and sober, November 6, 2017, carry the two. That's five weeks from now. So I was like, okay, whatever, whatever that means. So I end up uh, going home, shutting everything else out in the world. And I put my phone away, everything, and I sat down. And for the first couple days, I knew I wasn't going to be able to sit down and just write a book. Because I've been through that before in the past, in my, in my addiction, even like trying to write a book and just like going nowhere with it. So, and I had to... You can't force yourself to write a book anyway. It's like... Even if you have a publisher waiting or, or an editor waiting, the, you can't force Exactly, exactly. So what I did for the first couple of days was I had this big whiteboard in my office and I just started dumping everything out, everything from my life out, all these different experiences and all these different things that I had been through. And I'm like trying to create this way that I can actually like figure out exactly what I'm going to put in my book. And so for the first two days, I'm like processing all of this and then I have this list. I make a map of my story with the exact experiences I want to tell in it, the exact message I want to tell in my book I want it to point to. And through that process, I didn't realize at the time, but God was preparing me by giving me a process that works for every single recovery story. So I get this map, I get everything, and then I get a checklist of everything I have to do and I have to write. And then I sit down and I just write it. And in the next five weeks, I wrote it. I edited it myself three times and then sent it off to an editor. When I sent it to the editor, I did the uh, cover art. I did the KDP stuff. I did the, uh, the, all of the back-end stuff that you have to do in order to publish a book. And I published it on November 6, 2019, exactly five weeks after I decided to do it. And uh, it became a number one bestseller. I, I had this whole, this new marketing plan and all this, all these ideas for how to, you know, get it out to people and, and that kind of stuff. I created a launch team and, you know, all this to, to make it happen. And uh, then when it got out, 
exactly a month after, um, so it happened on November 6, 2019 is when it was published. On December 5th of 2019, so exactly 30 days later, I'm at this other conference in San Diego, and I'm standing in the back of the, of the audience, and someone walks up to me with a copy of my book, and he takes a deep breath, he says, bro, your book changed my life. I have three weeks clean. Will you sign it for me? And he hands it to me. His name's Israel, and he's still clean to this day. And when that happened, I realized, like, it's not just that I need to inspire other addicts to do it. Because just like me, I didn't know how to start. I, I, learned, I learned everything from my mentors. I learned from Chandler Bolt, Pedro Adeo, Pete Vargas, Tamara Lowe. I learned from, you know, Gary John Bishop, these people that have been feeding me, you know, with coaching and mentoring and stuff and teaching me these processes. My community needs that too. So I started a program uh, to teach people how to write and publish books, recovery books specifically. Started coaching that exact method that I used. You can see these books back here in the background. Uh, those are all from, from my program. And one of them right here, Brittany's, uh, her book, Mommy Drunkest, uh, she lost her four kids and her addiction to, you know, the CPS of her, of her town. And while she was in her addiction, she caught some charges. You know, she had to go to court a few times. And every time she went to court, she had the same DA. I coached her. She published her book for her four years clean and sober. And when she published it, that DA that prosecuted her bought a huge stack of her books and gives her book to women that he's prosecuting that are in similar situations oh, that wow. she was in. And that's, that's the power of a recovery story. And it's never been about me. It's never been like, I want to share my story. And that's something that I actually talked to a couple of my mentors about, Pete uh, Vargas and Pedro Adeo. I had that specific conversation with them. I was like, I don't want to start getting up on stages and, and sharing my story because I don't want it to ever be about me. I want to lift other people up to do this. And they got really deep into me and they were like, you have to. Because you have to be the one that shows them that it's possible, and then you give them the process on how to do it. So that's what I've been doing since. Um, I have this course, Recovery Speaker, Share Your Story Powerfully, where I have a whole digital course now on exactly how to do that whole process that I just told you about, and how to add purpose, mission, and passion to your life in recovery for, for sharing your story, and how to do it effectively, how to get on podcasts, how to get on stages, things like that. And then, I, and then everybody that goes through the course, I actually give them a certificate of completion with my signature on it. And then they get enrolled in, you know, and it, so it, they, they become a certified recovered on purpose recovery speaker. So they can use that name for the rest of their life. And they get enrolled into an affiliate program so that they can sell the course and do the coaching themselves also. So it's just like this community to share our stories and help addicts. Well, that sequence of events is phenomenal. Purpose can is so elusive. Yeah. We we all struggle with it. You know, I, I'm still trying to wind my way to my purpose or through my purpose. Yeah. But the idea of having recovered on purpose and then knowing that there's a that part of the light of their recovery will be this ability to share it and help other people is phenomenal. That is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Um yeah, no, I'm grateful to have you here and to know you because the 
your purpose was also evident in all the successes you had. Mm. Because the the things that you succeeded at that that were either just early successes, your ability to work while you were kind of, you know, to be industrious while you were using or do all these things, and then the stuff that, that came afterward but wasn't fulfilling, all of that stuff. I'm a big believer that everything is a piece of the puzzle. Everything is is useful. There wasn't a meeting or another thing that I did in the course of my life professionally and personally that isn't some kind of uh, preparation for something. But to be able to see it and use it is another thing. Yeah, I think for anyone uh, out there listening, the the key to that story that I just told about Recovered on Purpose in the book and helping people and all that stuff is that ideas are just ideas until we act on them. And as that's the thing, as soon as I acted on Recovered on Purpose, and then as soon as I acted on the book, and then as soon as I acted on the coaching program, it was having those ideas and then doing it. And that's the thing, we get blessed with seeds, you know, seeds towards our purpose, but we have to follow the the trail. We have to keep going after it. And, you know, he honors that. God honors that. Thank you so much, man, for being on the show and continued success and purpose. Thank you so much, Hirsch. And if anybody wants to, uh, wants to read my book or listen to my book with me reading it, they can go to fromchainstosaved.com and I give them a free digital and audio copy of it. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends.